John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Burkett notes, The foregoing chapter acquainted us with a famous encounter which the Pharisees had with our blessed Savior in the temple at Jerusalem. This being ended, as he passed from the temple, he saw a man lying, possibly by the highway, who was born blind. Him Christ pitches upon as an object fit to exercise his divine power in the cure and healing of. They that are blind by casualty may perhaps be relieved by art and industry, but to cure one that is born blind, nothing less is required than almighty power. Learn hence that diseases and distempers, which are incurable by the ordinary course of nature, are not insuperable to Christ's power, nor impossible for him to help, but a proper object for him to magnify his power upon. Therefore it is here recorded that this poor man was blind from his birth, such blindness being accounted incurable by natural means. Verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Burkett notes, Here observe something implied or supposed, namely, one, that all bodily afflictions and calamities do come upon us for sin, whereas afflictions, although they always fall upon a sinner, yet are not always sent to punish sin, but by way of purgation and prevention of sin. 2. It is here supposed that as some afflictions come upon men for personal sins, so others come upon them for parental sins, and the children may, and oftentimes do, very justly suffer for their parents' sins. 3. It is here supposed that there is no other reason of a person suffering but only sin, whereas though sin be much and often the cause of suffering, Yet we may wrong God and man, yea, and sin too, to conclude it always the cause of suffering. For it's implied here that there's a transmigration of souls from one body to another. The disciples supposed that this soul, when it was in another body, sinned, and was now punished by being put into a blind body. This Pythagorean error was crept in among the Pharisees, and the disciples seem here to be tainted and affected with it. This may teach us how far the holiest and wisest of men are from infallible spirit, and that the best of men may be misled by a common error. Verse 3. Jesus answered, Neither had this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work of God should be made manifest in him. Burkett notes, Christ's answer must not be understood absolutely, as if he denied this man and his parents to be guilty of sin for both he and they had sin enough, not only to deserve temporal blindness, but eternal darkness. The meaning is that in afflicting this man, the Lord did not so much respect his or his parents' sin as the manifestation of his own glory in this miraculous cure. Christ does not deny but that a man's own sin and the sin of his parents may be the procuring cause of blindness, but that neither the one nor the other was the cause in that man's case but that the power and mercy of God might be seen in restoring this man to his sight. Therefore he was born blind. Whence note one, that though sin be always the deserving, yet it is not always the procuring cause of affliction. Two, that we seldom think of or hit upon any other cause of affliction, but only sin, though the design of God looks beyond the sin of man in afflictions, 
Yet man seldom looks beyond that or thinks of any other design of God in afflicting but for punishing sin. Verses 4 and 5 I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh, and no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Burkett notes, Here our Savior tells his disciples that he was sent by God into the world and had a great work assigned to him by God during his abode in it, namely, to instruct, reform, and save mankind. And what our Savior says of himself is applicable to every one of us in the lower sense. We are sent into the world to work out our own salvation in the first place, and then to promote the salvation of others as much as in us lies. Note one, that everyone has a work to do in the world, a great work assigned to him by God that sent him into it. Two, that the time allotted for finishing and dispatching of this great work is a short season, while it is day. Three, that after the working season has passed and expired, there will succeed a night of darkness, in which there must be a cessation from work. The night cometh. Verses 6 and 7. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. Burkett notes, Two things concurred towards the cure of this blind man namely an act of divine power on Christ's part and an act of faith and obedience on the man's part. One, an act of divine power on Christ's part. He tempers clay and spittle together and anoints the man's eyes therewith, and behold, he sees. What an improbable remedy and means was this to human reason, much fitter to put out a seeing man's eyes than to cure a blind man's. Had Christ pulled out his box and applied some medicinal ointment to his eyes, Then the praise had been ascribed to his skill and not to his power. But now it plainly appeared that all the virtue was in Christ, not in the means. Lord, what great things canst thou do by weak and unlikely means? Yea, by opposite and contrary means. But it is the praise of omnipotence to work by improbabilities. From the contemptibleness of the means or instruments always redounds the greater honor to the agent. Observe, too, an act of faith and obedience on the man's part. He went away and washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam and returned, seeing. Where note how Christ delights to exercise and try the faith of his people by their subjection and obedience to difficult commands. Two, that true faith joined with sincere obedience never faileth the expectation of them that exercise it, especially in obeying the most hard and difficult commands. Therefore, the evangelist added that the blind man, after washing, returned, seeing. Verses 8 through 12. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. Burkett notes, The blind man, thus miraculously cured, 
returns with much joy to his neighbors and acquaintance, who confer with him about this matter. They inquire whether he was the person cured or not, who was the person that cured him, and where that person was. He assures them he was the very person that was blind, but now cured, and he that cured him was Jesus, that the means used were clay and spittle, but where the person was, or what was become of him, he knew not. Learn hence, one, that the miraculous cures of God work a sensible alteration in men, not only in their own apprehension, but in the judgments of others. This miracle shined forth among the neighbors who, having seen and observed the blind man, admire his healing. Learn, too, how frankly the blind man acknowledges and how freely he confesses that he was the person whom Jesus had healed. I am he. It's an unthankful silence to smother the work of God in affected secrecy. To make God a loser by his bounty towards us is a shameful injustice. O God, we are not worthy of thy common favors, much less of spiritual blessings, if we do not publish thy mercies on the housetop and praise thee for them in the great congregation. Verses 13 through 16. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisee also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon my eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. Burkett Notes Observe here, one, how the Jews, who should have been full of silent wonder and inclined to believe in Jesus Christ, so omnipotent an agent, are prejudiced against him and bring the late blind man before the Pharisees, our Savior's professed enemies. Observe, too, the time which our Savior chose for working this cure. It was on the Sabbath. Many, if not most, of Christ's famous miracles were wrought upon the Sabbath day. Upon that day he cured the withered hand, Matthew 12. Upon that day he cured the impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, John 5. Upon that day he cured the blind man here. This Christ did probably for two reasons. One, to confirm his doctrine which he preached on that day by miracles. Therefore his preaching and working of miracles went together. Two, to instruct the Jews, had they been willing to receive instruction in the true doctrine and proper duties of their Sabbath, and to let them know that works of necessity and mercy are very consistent with the due sanctification of the Sabbath. It's hard to find out any time wherein charity is unseasonable, for as it is the best of graces, so the works of it are fittest for the best of days. Verses 17 through 23. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. Burkett notes, observe here, one, how desirous the Pharisees were to obscure the glory of this famous miracle which Christ had wrought, in order to which, one, they re-examined the man to know what his thoughts were of the person who had done this for him. They judged him to be an impostor and a great sinner. The man declares freely that he believed him to be a great prophet. Hence we learn that there may be, and sometimes is, more true knowledge of Jesus Christ in one poor man than in a general council of learned rabbis. This blind man saw Christ to be a prophet when the Jewish Sanhedrin saw nothing in him but imposture. This man is not of God, says the council. Verily, he is a prophet, says the blind man. Two, they next examine his parents, being unwilling to believe the man himself, whether he was their son or not. If so, whether he was born blind, and if born blind, by what means he now sees. Lord, what obstinate and willful blindness was found in these Pharisees. How do they close their eyes and say, we will not see? What endeavors are here used to smother a miracle, which undeniably proved Christ to be the expected Messiah? They examine first the man, then his parents, then the man again, hoping that being overawed with fear, they would either deny or at least conceal the truth. But the more they strove to darken and obscure the truth, the more conspicuous and evident they made it. Great is the truth and will prevail how many soever oppose it and set themselves against it. Observe next the wisdom and cautiousness of his parents' answer. They expressly own that the blind man was their son, that he was born blind, but for the way of his cure, they waived that, possibly because they did not see the cure wrought, and fearing the sentence of excommunication, a decree being passed among the rulers, that whosoever confesseth Christ should be put out of the synagogue. Hence learn one, that excommunication or separation from the society of the people of God is an ancient and honorable ordinance in the church of God, and as such to be revered and esteemed. Two, that this ordinance of God has been and may be abused by wicked men, and the edge of it turned against Christ himself and his sincerest members. Three, that the fear of unjust excommunication must not discourage persons from confessing the truth when called to it. The parents of the blind man durst not confess Christ for fear that they should be put out of the synagogue. Verses 24 through 29. Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they unto him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not whence he is. Burkett notes, Here we have an account of the Pharisees further practicing upon the blind man to rob Christ of the glory of this miracle. First they insinuate with him, and then they frown upon him. First they insinuate with him, saying, Give God the praise, as if they had said, Ascribe the cure to God, not to this man, whom they concluded to be a sinner because he broke, as they thought, the Sabbath. It's no new thing to see man pretend to aim at the glory of God, when at the same time they are maliciously opposing Christ and persecuting his members. 
Next, they attempt to frown this poor man into a denial of this miracle wrought upon him, or to persuade the people that it was a cheat. But it's wonderful to observe how the boldness and confidence of this poor man increased, God giving him that wisdom and courage which all his adversaries were not able to resist or gainsay. Therefore, the Pharisees, being angry at the boldness of the man, they revile him for being so silly as to become a disciple of Christ, whose office and authority they knew not, whereas they were the disciples of Moses, whom they knew God spake unto. Learn hence that such as are led by malice and prepossessed with prejudice against Christ will not only think basely of his person, but refuse to see the clearest evidences of his authority and commission. As for this fellow, say the malicious Pharisees, we know not whence he is, or who gave him this commission. Verses 30-33 through 33. The man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye knew not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshipper of God, and doth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Burkett notes, in these verses, the blind man proceeds to vindicate our blessed Savior, who had cured him of his blindness, from the various exceptions of the Pharisees, and endeavor by solid argument to convince them that his cure, being born blind, was truly miraculous and consequently prove Christ to be of God. One, the man admires that Christ, having wrought such a miracle upon him, they should be ignorant of his authority. This is marvelous, that ye know not whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. He lays down a general proposition, that no deceiver or false teacher is heard of God, or enabled by him to work such miracles as these. But only such faithful servants as do his will are thus extraordinarily assisted by him. We know that God heareth not sinners, that is, such as love and delight in sin, such as are in a state of sin and go on in a course of sin. God will not hear such or answer the prayers of such. Indeed, God sometimes hears a sinner's prayers in wrath and refuses to hear a sinner's prayer in mercy, but he never denies a saint's prayers in wrath or hears a sinner's prayer in mercy. The proposition laid down is an eternal truth. God heareth not sinners. That is, so long as they propose to continue sinners, and to go on in a course of sin, and to remain bold and presumptuous sinners. Learn, thence that none that live in a course of sin can reasonably expect that God should hear them, and give in an answer of prayer to them. God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. That is, if a man feareth God, and worketh righteousness, him the Lord accepteth, heareth, and answereth. Learn hence that such as would be heard of God and accepted with him must be devout worshippers of him. Two, that it is not enough to prove men religious and acceptable with God that they are devout worshippers of him, unless they walk in obedience to him and do his will. If any man be a worshipper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Observe 3. How the blind man goes on to prove that Christ had a special authority from God, and an extraordinary presence of God with him in what he did, because he had done such a work as was never done by Moses, or by any of the prophets, or by any person whatsoever, since the creation of the world. 
from whence he wisely and well infers that Christ was a person authorized by and sent of God. Learn hence, one, that Christ, having done that which was never done before, namely to give sight to one who was born blind, was an evidence of his omnipotence. Two, that this act of omnipotence proved him to be God, whereas whatever miracles the prophets wrought, they wrought them by Christ's power. But Christ wrought this and all other miracles by his own power. Observe lastly how this blind man, though unlearned, judges more rightly of divine things than the whole learned council of the Sanhedrin. Whence we learn that we are not always to be led by the authority of councils, popes, or bishops, and that it is not absurd for laymen sometimes to vary from their opinions, these overseers being sometimes guilty of great oversight. Dr. Whitby, verses 34 through 38. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he'd found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Perquet notes, Observe here, one, a special instance of pharisaical pride. They account this poor man a vile person, whom heaven and marked by his native blindness for some extraordinary wickedness. How prone we are to judge them the greatest sinners, whom we observe to be the greatest sufferers. Observe, too, from the reviling they proceed to excommunicating. They cast him out, that is, out of the communion of the Jewish church. O happy man, who, having lost a synagogue, has found heaven. Behold this blind man and admire him for a resolute confessor, stoutly defending the gracious author of his cure against the cavails of the Pharisee and maintaining the innocence and honor of so blessed a benefactor. Observe three, our Savior's regard to this blind man whom the Pharisees had set at naught and excommunicated. He finds him out, reveals himself more fully to him, and directs him to believe in him. Where observe, that the miracle which Christ had wrought upon the blind man did not convert him and work faith in him till Christ revealed himself unto him and enabled him to discern the truth of what he had revealed. Learn hence that miracles confirm faith, but miracles alone cannot work faith. The blind man had experienced a miracle wrought upon him, yet remains an unbeliever till Christ had said, I am he. Observe for how readily the man receives the Lord Jesus Christ by faith Upon the aforementioned revelation of himself unto him, he instantly said, Lord, I believe, and in testimony thereof worships himself, that is, as God incarnate, as God manifested in the flesh. Thence learn that true knowledge of the Son of God will beget faith in him, and true faith in him will be productive of homage and adoration, of obedience and subjection to him. He that knows Christ aright will believe, and he that believes, will worship and obey. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Burkett notes, In these words our Savior declares not the intentional design, but the accidental event of his coming into the world, namely, one, that those who were blind might receive sight. Two, that those who presume they see 
and no more than others, for despising the gospel and shutting their eyes against the light of it, should be left in darkness, and by the just judgment of God be more and more blinded. Those that shut their eyes willfully against the clearest light and say they will not see, it is just with God to close their eyes judicially and say they shall not see. Verses 40 and 41. And some of the Pharisee which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. How the Pharisee, who watched all opportunities to ensnare our Savior, looked upon these last words as reflecting upon them, as if Christ did insinuate that they were blind. Are we blind also? They that shut their eyes and will not see the light which Christ offers to them are the worst of the blind ones. Observe, too, our Savior's reply to the Pharisee's question. If ye were blind, that is, simply ignorant of your duty and without the means of knowledge and instruction, you should have no sin. That is, comparatively to what you have. You now should not have so much sin and guilt upon you as you now have by shutting your eyes against the light. But now, ye say, we see. That is, being puffed up with the knowledge which you have, as if you were the only men that saw, this proud conceit of yours renders your condition incurable, and your sin remaineth unpardonable. Learn hence, one, that it is a far greater sin to condemn the known laws of God than to be ignorant of them. Pride is a greater hindrance of knowledge than ignorance, because the proud man thinks he wants no knowledge. Two, that the most exalted knowledge is insufficient to salvation without a suitable and correspondent practice. The Pharisees had the key of knowledge at their girdle, yet our Savior tells them of double damnation. Lord, how sad it is to so know Christ in this world as that he will be ashamed to know us in another world.